You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. You will surely die. <clears throat> Those are sobering words, aren't they? Do you remember who said them? Some of you do. Who said those words? You shall surely die. Who said those words? God himself. And to whom did he say them? To Adam. That's right at the beginning of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. Let me read to you that whole passage. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. But Adam did eat of that forbidden tree, didn't he? He disobeyed the Lord God. He sinned against his creator God. And so sin and its ugly fruit of death entered the human race. As the Apostle Paul would later write in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now, if you will, just pause with me for a moment and think about those two phrases together. Sin entered the world. Death came to all people. We know that, don't we? We know that in our hearts. We know that from life experience. Some of us have buried family members in the last year. We know that. We know death comes to all men, and yet we live in this state of denial. We live in this, this pretend world like death isn't really going to happen. It's not going to happen to me. It's not going to happen to us. I think a classic example, and I know I've shared this illustration with some of you previously, but I'm going to share it again. I think the classic example, nothing against any of you that sell life insurance, but, but a classic example is when a life insurance salesman is selling you a policy. What a misnomer, life insurance. <laughs> I can distinctly remember our life insurance salesman, who's a friend, a brother in Christ, sitting at our dining room table when his only insurance men could do, reading that policy upside down to him, <laughs> with his pencil traveling along the lines, and he would repeatedly say, now, Larry, if something should happen to you, I remember sitting there just flabbergasted, and I says, what, what is this if stuff? <laughs> what is this if stuff if something should happen to you? I said, brother, I know I'm going to die. I know that. You can say, Larry, when you die. You're okay. I won't be offended. So as you go over this policy, you're free to say, Larry, when you die. And so he would do it for about 10 seconds, and then he'd go back to, Larry, if something should happen to you. That's, that's what he's trained to do. <laughs> and yet we all know death comes to all people. You, you will surely die. I will surely die. We're descendants of our great-great-grandfather, Adam. As he sinned, sin entered the human race, and with that sin came death. My question this morning is this, is there any solution? Is there any solution to this tragedy of death coming to all people? Is there any solution to death coming 
for my loved ones, for death coming for me. Join me, please, in the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. It's a long chapter. We'll cover it as best we can this morning. But as we look at John, chapter 11, let's get some background. What's going on in this story? It's a phenomenal story. It's a true story. An historic event. As we look at the first 16 verses, which I'm going to read in a moment, let's kind of get a feel for what's going on here by asking the traditional journalism questions. Who, what, when, why, where? Let's ask those questions, okay? You think of those questions now as I read the first 16 verses of the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Word of God says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Okay, when is this story happening? Uh, welcome, those of you who are guests. We've been studying the Gospel of John here at CCC for a number of months. And the Gospel of John is laid out, interestingly, into two halves, you might say. The first 11 chapters kind of tell everything from eternity past. Remember how the Gospel of John begins? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it moves up to this period right before what we know as the Passion Week, um, Palm Sunday, the crucifixion, the resurrection. So the first 11 chapters cover all of that, and then we get to chapters 12 and following, and it's like John hits the slow-mo button, and everything slows down. And now we're going to take particular interest in the events right before the cross, the cross, the resurrection. And so today we're coming kind of to the end of the first half of the Gospel of John. We are weeks, not months, we are weeks away from the cross. Where did this event take place? Our next journalism question, where did this event take place? Well, according to John chapter 10, verse 40, Jesus is residing temporarily on the east side of the Jordan River outside the province of Judea. What had happened was when Jesus would visit Jerusalem, he would make pronouncements about himself that um, 
angered the Jewish establishment, that disturbed very much the Jewish leadership. Jesus made very clear, very bold pronouncements of his identity, clearly announcing to everyone that he is the Messiah. He is God's anointed king. That he is God come in the flesh. That he was sent particularly by God the Father into this world to redeem his sheep. Jesus said stuff like that. He said things like, before Abraham was, I am. He said, I am the bread of life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. And the religious establishment was greatly disturbed and sought to kill him. And because things had heated up so much in Judea, and in particular, heated up so much in the capital city of Jerusalem, Jesus removed himself a long day's walk to the other side of the Jordan River, and there he was training his disciples and comforting them leading up to the cross. But most of our story today, even though that's where the story starts, with Jesus and his men on the east side of the Jordan, most of the story takes place in the little village of Bethany. Now, if you were to go to Jerusalem and look off to the east, you would see a hill. It's fairly famous, even if you've never been there. You've probably heard of the Mount of Olives. That's the hill that lies to the east of the city of Jerusalem. You go up that hill and probably just crest a little bit, and you would find this village of Bethany. That's where our story primarily takes place, just about two miles outside the capital where the people were who wanted to kill Jesus. Who's all involved in this encounter? Well, three of the characters that you notice uh, are these siblings. Martha, who is probably the oldest, her younger sister Mary, and then there was their brother Lazarus. And it seems from this story that Jesus had a particular friendship with these adult siblings, with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. Now, we don't know all the details, but it is quite likely that on Jesus' repeated visits to Jerusalem, he would stay at the homes of friends. It's quite likely that he would stay at the homes of Mary, Martha, or Lazarus, one of their homes, and over the years had become a dear friend to them and they to him. And so Jesus had particularly close friends, too. He was a friend of all sinners, but he had particular friends, too, like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Also in the story, we see the 12 disciples. By the way, Thomas, whom we always know as Doubting Thomas, here is showing some courage, isn't he? He, he's just sure that they're going to die. I mean, if we go to Jerusalem, we're all going to die. Well, let's go, let's go with Jesus and die. You have to respect him for his courage at this point. The 12 disciples were there, and one of them was John, who the Lord used to write the Gospel of John, what we're reading about today. Then there are also these unnamed people in this story, uh, friends, neighbors, relatives of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, people that lived there in Bethany and from the nearby city of Jerusalem who cared about them as friends and came to mourn with them. But the main character of this story, the focal point of the story, is none other than Jesus himself. Jesus is the point of this story. So what? What is happening in this story? Well, Lazarus is sick, isn't he? This close friend of Jesus was sick. And as Lazarus took sick, apparently a sickness that seemed like it was leading to death, his sisters, Martha and Mary, who apparently knew where Jesus was, sent a messenger down the hill and across the river to find Jesus with this subtle request. They never actually made a request, but it's implied, isn't it? He says, Jesus, they said to Jesus through the messenger, this friend of yours, this person you love, Lazarus, is ill. He's sick. Implied in that statement is a request, isn't there? Could you please come? Jesus, 
you're the healer. Jesus, you're the one who works miracles. Jesus, would you come and heal our brother, your friend, Lazarus? But Jesus doesn't come right away, does he? You know, if we were to write this story as a fictional account, we probably would have Jesus saying, Men, it's packed up, man, let's go. You know, hurry, double time, we're heading, we're heading up that hill. You know, we're heading to Bethany, and yet Jesus doesn't do that. He delays. And he makes these somewhat cryptic statements now and then. Did you notice those? What was that one in 11 we read? Verse 11. He said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. What did we read back in verse 4? This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And the disciples, Jesus' men, thought through his cryptic statements that Lazarus was maybe on the mend. You know, maybe his fever broke and he's finally able to get some sleep. He's able to get some rest. What's the big hurry, you know? I mean, he's going to get better. And so Jesus has to tell them explicitly in verse 14, Lazarus has died. Now, let me just point out something that we could miss if we read this too quickly. The message from Mary and Martha was that Lazarus was ill. Jesus says categorically, Lazarus is dead. And so Jesus knew supernaturally that his friend Lazarus was not only sick, but sometime between the time the messenger left Bethany and this time where Jesus says, let's go, that Lazarus had died. Uh, Jesus was very much aware that Lazarus had expired. So now Jesus and his disciples begin that long, arduous walk, fording the Jordan River, climbing that long, dusty road up the hill toward Bethany, entering dangerous territory, the territory of Judea. Jesus was on a mission. Let's read now a few more verses. Let's read verses 17 through 20. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Now, just a little bit of background here. Funerals back in the first century in Judaism, traditionally when someone died, they were buried the same day. Here in America, we tend to wait two, three days, sometimes longer if relatives have to come internationally. Uh, but in the Mideast, they did not embalm the bodies in Israel. Um, it was usually a hot uh, temperature in that country, so people got buried the day they died. So what would happen was a person died, he would be wrapped, maybe some spices on it to hold down the smell of decay, and there would be a procession to the tomb with the men leading, the women would come behind, uh, the women in particular, but maybe the men as well, wailing. Uh, that's not part of our culture in America, but if you visit some countries today, they still do this. Whenever there's a death, friends, family, neighbors wail. Uh, they wail uh, loudly over the death of this person who has died. And that's what would have been happening here. So Lazarus was already in the tomb. He's been in there for days. Uh, but the funeral itself kind of goes on for days and days. And people would come and visit the relatives in their home and grieve with them uh, for a matter of days. So these friends, relatives, neighbors are gathered there comforting Mary and Martha. Jesus comes up the hill and someone gets the word to Martha that Jesus has come. And so now in verses 21 through 27... We're going to see this conversation that Jesus has with Martha. Verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, 
my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, listen to this wonderful confession. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So Martha leaves the house and Jesus stops somewhere on the outskirts of the village. Martha goes to to meet him there and the disciples. And as she gets there, what does she say? What does she say? Do you see it in your Bible there? If you had been here. Now, let's give Martha some credit here. That is an expression of faith, isn't it? That is an expression of Martha's faith. She was confident that Jesus had the, the ability, the authority, and even the willingness to heal sick people. She said, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. You would have healed him. But it's also, an ex- it's not only an expression of faith, it's also an expression of disappointment, isn't it? If. If you had been here, Jesus, but you weren't, why didn't you come? And I tried to imagine this as I was reading this passage and meditating on it. In my imagination, I, I pictured Mary and Martha, maybe in one home or the other, and, and one of them, maybe Martha, standing at the door. And, and Mary in the house sitting says, Do you see him, Martha? Do you see him? Is he coming? No. The sun's going down, and he's not here. I guess he's not coming today. And maybe the next morning, do you see him? Martha, do you see him? Is he coming? I, I, don't, I don't see him, Mary. I, I don't see him. And then Lazarus expires. He dies. Her brother dies while they're waiting. While they're waiting for Jesus. And you know, I think about Martha's disappointment in Jesus. She's saying, if you'd been here. You know, I, I read this passage, I don't know how many times. I, maybe 10, 20 times before I noticed a little word that just started opening up windows in my understanding. Look at verse 6. How does verse 6 begin? If you have the English Standard Version, what's the first word of verse 6? So, that little word, so. In the original, it's actually the word therefore. Therefore. Let me, let me read verse 5 and 6 together, emphasizing the therefore. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You see, when we're waiting on him, when we're waiting on our Lord, we're we're crying out in prayer, Lord, come and and fix this. Come, come, Lord, come and fix my, my suffering. Come and change my suffering. Change my grief. Preserve me from hardship. We're praying and it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in the timing we think it should. We think, oh, He doesn't care. You know, why isn't He answering my prayer? Maybe He doesn't love me. Maybe He's forgotten me. And yet, the Holy Spirit, through the Gospel writer John, says, therefore. No, Jesus did love. He did love Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He he did love them. The fact that Lazarus was sick and dying is no indicator that He didn't love them. He did love them. That's a categorical statement. Therefore, he waited. 
You see, Jesus had a plan that Martha and Mary knew nothing about. He had a plan. He knew the Father was going to be glorified through Him, through the resurrection that was coming. But Martha and Mary didn't know that. They didn't know that. And so they're judging what's happening based on what they saw, what they understood, what they wanted, what they wished for, what they prayed for. And you know, Christian friends, sometimes we are disappointed with God. We're disappointed with Him. We pray and we feel like, He's not answering. He's not answering. I'm still in this mess. I'm still in this pain. I'm still grieving. Why isn't He answering my prayers? Maybe He doesn't love me. And what we do is we look, we look at His love through the lenses of suffering. And we say, I'm looking through this pain I'm in and, and I, can't, I can't see His love. Maybe, maybe He doesn't love me. But what we learn in a passage like this is, We don't look at His love through the lenses of suffering. We look at our suffering through the lenses of His love. He says He loves us. We know He loves us. And through the lenses of His love, we look at our suffering. And we say, the Savior who loves me is holding me fast through this suffering. Jesus pushes Martha's faith a bit, doesn't he? Look at verse 23 again when Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha makes this wonderful theological statement, doesn't she? I know that my brother will rise again on the last day. That's good theology, my friends. Martha was a good theologian. She knew that one day there would be the great resurrection and her brother Lazarus would rise on that day. Jesus never scolds her, never corrects her for theology. That's good theology. But Jesus pushes her a bit, lovingly pushes her a bit, and it's as if Jesus is saying, Martha, that's good theology, but I want you to see theology doesn't exist out there on its own. It it rests on me. He says, I am. I am the resurrection and the life. That there would be no resurrection, there would be no life, Apart from me, Martha, it all rests on me. I am, as it were, the very embodiment of resurrection and life itself. And so Jesus looks at Martha and says, Martha, do you believe this? And she gives this beautiful confession of faith in verse 27. I believe, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And then there's this conversation between Jesus and Mary. And we're not going to be able to embellish on it, but let me read it to you, beginning at verse 28. When she had said this, she went back to the house and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here, he's calling for you. And when she, Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her, with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. By the way, every time you see Mary in the Bible, she's at the feet of Jesus. Isn't that precious? She fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We've heard that already, haven't we? When Jesus saw her weeping 
And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus has this conversation with Mary, and then Jesus is going to confront death itself. And as we see Jesus confronting death itself, I want you to notice the emotions of Jesus. What's the shortest verse in our English Bible? Some of you know this. Jesus wept. Yeah, when I was a kid, we'd get points at church for memorizing verses, so everyone picked that one. <laughs> Jesus wept. <laughs> it's a little bit different than the wailing we've seen in the mourners. It's a, not a common word, but it has more the idea of silently weeping, tears streaming down your face, as it were. Jesus was weeping. We forget sometimes that Jesus cares. He cares. When he saw... Mary and Martha weeping when he saw the friends, the neighbors, most of whom were without him, most of whom were without saving grace, weeping over the death of Lazarus. Jesus was brokenhearted. He was probably brokenhearted that many of them didn't believe him. But there's another emotion in this passage that is fascinating. If you, if you see verse 38, if you're using the ESV, the NIV, both of them have being deeply moved. It's an interesting word. There have been articles and articles written on this word. What does it mean? What does it mean in this context? It seems to be a word that has some elasticity. It, it can have different emphases depending on how it's being used. But it always seems to have some implication of being agitated, being disturbed. Being deeply moved seems to be a polite way to say it. it, it I think it was B.B. Warfield who, who said, Holy rage! I mean, there, there's something inside here. There's this disturbance, this agitation in Jesus' soul. What is he so agitated about? What is this disturbance in Jesus' soul as he's there at the death of his friend Lazarus? I believe that what he's agitated with, depending, dependent upon what he says next, when he says, where have you laid him? I think it's an agitation over the effects of sin the effect of death upon the human race and upon this created universe. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by Him. As the Creator God, Jesus saw the effects that sin had on His creation, on His image bearers, on people that He loved. And He saw the effects of death. And He knew that He came what did John write in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 8? Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus was there as a warrior. Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb as a warrior, as a champion. And he was ready to have it out with death. He saw the effects that sin spurred death had upon his people. And he says, enough of this. He's agitated. He's disturbed in his soul over sin and death. Verses 38 and 39. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. 
He's been dead for four days. Take away the stone. Many years ago, John Calvin said, the Christ approaches the sepulcher as a champion preparing for a contest. In more recent days, Richard Phillips said, no warrior ever waded into his enemy's ranks with greater ferocity than Jesus did in warring with death. And Jesus speaks with authority there at the tomb of Lazarus. And he tells his people, move the stone! Then at first resistance. And then some men, no doubt, strong men, rolled away that heavy stone. And I realize I'm reading between the lines here, but what I, what I hear going on behind the scenes is Jesus saying, Death, we're having it out today! Satan, I came to destroy you. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I say this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Lazarus, come out. I'm ordering you, death. Let him go. And the dead man is now alive, walking out of the tomb. I can still remember one of the earliest special speakers we had at our church, one of my former seminary profs, John Sproul, preached on this passage one day. And I remember him saying, if Jesus hadn't called out Lazarus by name, the whole cemetery would have emptied. <laughs> I thought that, that could well be. <laughs> he spoke with that kind of power. That he's the victor. He's the victor. He's the champion. He came to destroy the works of the devil. You know what the story is? It is one of the most phenomenal miracles ever reported in the Bible. But in another sense, it's an appetizer of a greater miracle yet to come. One that will come in a matter of mere weeks, just a couple miles down the hill in Jerusalem. On a particular Friday, a few weeks after this, Jesus will die on a Roman cross. And on that cross, Jesus will rob death of its very reason of existence. He dies for the sins of his people. Death no longer has any right to claim permanently any of his sheep, any of Christ's sheep. Jesus is robbing death of its reason of existence. And then he rose again. On that Sunday morning, Jesus rose again himself. He had the authority to lay down his life, as we read a couple weeks ago, and he has authority to take it up again. And on that Sunday morning, Jesus took it up again. When Jesus rose again, Paul would write to the Romans in 6.9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And then Paul wrote to the Colossians, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. 
or as Peter preached a matter of weeks later in the temple complex, God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus arose from that grave as the victor over death. He killed death, as it were, in his death and resurrection. And he ascended up to his place of glory in heaven. And one of these days, Jesus is coming back to this fallen planet. And you and I, you and I who are believers, we anticipate that day. We're, we're homesick for that day. And when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said this, For the Lord himself, Jesus himself, will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Just like he commanded, he commanded Lazarus to come out. There will be another cry of command. And the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That even as Lazarus heard the voice of his Savior that day, you and I who die before the return of the Lord, we will hear the command of our Savior on Resurrection Day. On Resurrection Day, the champion, Jesus, will return to this planet and He will say, Death, give up my people. And there will be a glorious physical resurrection of you, believer, and all the other believers from all the ages from all around the world rising to meet our Savior in the air. You know, there's another encounter in this story that we've not talked about yet. I'm not sure how much time I should take to read it all. It's the rest of the chapter, actually. But let me read to you beginning of verse 45, and we'll see how far we can get. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered in council to the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them in this pragmatic prophecy, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Let me just pause there for a minute. It's Jesus called out Lazarus from the grave and Lazarus came forth. It says that many people believed in him. Now, put yourself in the sandals of those people. When they left the house, all they were doing was showing sympathy to Mary and Martha. That, that, that's all. They, they didn't care about Jesus. They just cared about their friends, Mary and Martha. So they were just going to be with their friends, little knowing that they were about to witness Jesus in all of his power, raising Lazarus from the dead. And as I think about that, I think, you know what? You have non-Christian friends. I have non-Christian friends. And sometimes they hang with us just because they're our friends. They, 
they're just our friends. They, they don't really care about Jesus, but they maybe care about us. Maybe they're coworkers or neighbors or friends from some hobby you have together, and schoolmates, and they hang with you because they're your friends. My, my Christian friends, when our non-Christian friends hang with us, may they see Jesus. May they encounter Jesus because they hang with us. Because they hang with us. Because they see Christ in us, through us. Never disparage the friendships you have with unsafe friends. But pray, oh Lord, may they see Christ. May they see Christ. Incredibly, some of the people who witnessed this astonishing miracle did not believe in Jesus. It says that. And you, and you scratch your head and you say, how can that even be? How could people who witnessed with their own eyes a dead man coming alive again, how could people witnessing that not believe that Jesus is who he says he is? How could that ever happen? Well, Jesus himself said in Luke 16, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if Someone rises from the dead. They have Moses and the prophets. They have the Bible, the Word of God. If they won't believe the Word of God, they're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. There is that kind of hardness in people's hearts, that kind of blindness in spiritually blind people, that even if they witness Jesus doing a miracle of resurrection, apart from God's intervening grace, they will not believe. And in fact, they headed down the hill to find the religious establishment and say, Jesus is up there and this is what he's doing. And the plot to kill Jesus began to take substance, began to take form. And in a matter of weeks, they indeed would kill him. Let me address those of you today, boys, girls, men and women, who still have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. I repeat to you the words of God himself. You will surely. You're going to die. There's, there's no if. There's no if. This is not potentiality. This is reality. You're going to die. My question to you today is, then what? Then what? Jesus has said repeatedly in this gospel, as John records it, if you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. That's a horrifying thing to think about. What that means is you will suffer eternal punishment in hell because of your refusal to put your faith in Jesus Christ, God's anointed Savior. But Jesus Christ says, he, he, offers, he offers a solution. He says, if you believe in me, you will not die. Even though you die, you'll rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Will you put your faith in him today? I want to make some pastoral comments to those here today who are believers that I believe legitimately arise from this text. Mary and Martha, if you had been here, if you had been here. You and I live in this era between the gardens. In this era between the gardens, we still feel the effects of sin. We still feel the effects of the fall, the curse. And sometimes we can be very disappointed with God in our suffering. And maybe we've cried out, to God for years for some solution to the problem, for, for relief from the suffering that we're undergoing, some preservation from the grief that comes to us living in this fallen world. And, and it seems like he hasn't answered. And we can, like Mary and Martha, begin to doubt, 
we can begin to talk to God with voices of disappointment. Has he forgotten about me? Why doesn't he care? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? And we need to go back and remind ourselves of the essential truths of the gospel. We need to ask ourselves some questions. I'm going to give you three questions to ask yourself in those times when you are tempted to doubt God and to express disappointment with God. Ask yourself this question to start with. Does the Lord love me? You can answer this one out loud if you care to. Does he love you? How do you know? How do you know? Because of the cross. John would later write in his first epistle, he says that this is how we know what love is. He gave his life for us. And my Christian friend, I don't want to minimize in any way the level of suffering you are undergoing. I don't want to minimize in any way the grief you're experiencing. But the love that the Lord has for you is beyond question. It is beyond question. Because in your suffering, the cross stands as a monument a monument to his love. And you always look at your suffering through the lenses of his love established at the cross. You always start with the cross. And you say, oh, how he loves me. Does he love you? Yes. Does he have a plan for you? Oh, how we forget the Word of God in our moments of doubt. But Paul wrote to the Romans. He said that those whom God loved, He foreknew. Let me just read it to you so I don't misquote it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good of those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And Paul says there, all things, not just the pleasant things, not just the pleasant things, but the painful things too. All things, all things work together for one ultimate good to make us like Christ. He's conforming us to the image of His Son. So in your darkest moments, in the gloom of despair, the Lord by His grace blows the clouds away so you see the cross and then you remember, then you remember he has a plan. And even though I might not know the details, I can see that he has my good in view, that he's making me more like his son. And this suffering, this grief that I'm experiencing is purposeful. It's not random. It's not because God's on vacation. He's taken a nap. He's forgotten about me. He doesn't care about me anymore. Oh no, you are on his heart and in his mind. And He is very intentionally working His good in you, making you more like Christ through your suffering, even if that suffering goes on for years. Does He love you? Yes. Does He have a plan for you? Yes. Does He have a solution to your grief? meditating on this passage this week and I said to Gladine, I said, you know what? When we have a friend who loses a loved one, you know the best thing we can offer? Our sympathy. That's the best we can offer. So we have a friend that's lost a loved one, the grief of death. 
And we offer our sympathy. We, we feel with you. We, we hurt for you. We grieve with you. We offer our sympathy. My friends, Jesus, he sympathizes. He weeps. But you realize Jesus and Jesus alone not only offers a sympathy, he offers the solution. He and he alone has a solution. In our grief, he says, I, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. In your deepest grief, you look at Christ and you say, He's not only sympathetic with my weaknesses, but He is the solution to my deepest grief. He's the solution. He is the resurrection and the life. So does He love you? Does He have a plan for you? Does He have a solution to your deepest grief? Yes. And so, my friends, we can rest in Him, the one who is the resurrection, and the life.